Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. My name is Dr. Jasmine Masumi, and I am a pediatric resident at LACUSC Medical Center. Now for today's case. A 20-day-old premature male infant who develops feeding intolerance by Rebecca Mayer and Jennifer Shepard. A male infant is born at 29 and 5 weeks with a birth weight of 1450 grams, is now 20 days old in the neonatal intensive care unit or the NICU. Entral feeds with breast milk via a nasogastric tube were initiated on the second day of life. The caloric density of his feeds was recently increased from 22 to 24 calories per ounce. With his most recent feed, he has a gastric residual of 12 mLs, more than his usual volume of 1 to 2 mLs. What are some causes of feeding intolerance in premature infants? Feeding intolerance is the inability to digest feedings associated with increased gastric residuals, abdominal distension, and or emesis. In preterm infants, gastric emptying and intestinal motility are immature, which can result in gastrointestinal reflux, gastric residuals, distension, delayed passage of meconium, bowel distension, and benign feeding intolerance. Sepsis in a neonate can cause a functional ileus, which can present with increased gastric residuals. Necrotizing enterocolitis, or NEC, can also present with gastric residuals as an early sign. Now time for a basic science pearl. Preterm infants have decreased gastric acid secretion, impairing the activity of enterokinases, enzymes secreted by the duodenum that are necessary for the activation of pancreatic enzymes, which aid in digestion. Enterokinases require an acidic environment for proper functioning. Case point 54.1. The patient has been having increased number of apneic episodes, tachypnea, tachycardia, and an increasing oxygen requirement. His temperature is 97.7 degrees Fahrenheit, blood pressure is 78 over 36 millimeters of mercury, mean arterial pressure is 50 millimeters per mercury, pulse rate is 183 beats per minute, respiratory rate is 66 breaths per minute, and oxygen saturation is 96% on 1 liter per minute of oxygen via nasal cannula. Patient is minimally reactive, tachypnic with subcostal retractions, and tachycardic. His abdomen is full, soft, and non-tender with bowel sounds. What studies are important for further evaluation of an infant with new onset feeding intolerance and clinical deterioration? When an infant presents with feeding intolerance in the context of clinical deterioration, it should not be attributed to physiologic feeding intolerance due to prematurity without further investigation to rule out more serious causes. The investigation should include evaluation for infection with a complete blood count or CBC, C-reactive protein or CRP level, blood culture, and abdominal x-ray. Time for case point 54.2. CBC, CRP level, coagulation studies, capillary blood gas values, blood culture, and chemistry panel are sent, as seen in table 54.1. The abdominal x-ray demonstrates dilated loops of bowel, pneumatosis intestinalis, or air in the bowel wall, and portal venous air, as seen in figure 54.1. The patient passes a large, grossly bloody stool. 
So what is necrotizing enterocolitis? NEC, or necrotizing enterocolitis, is an acute inflammation and ischemia of the intestinal mucosa, often resulting in intestinal necrosis and is a medical emergency. The overall incidence is 0.5 to 5 out of 1,000 live births in approximately 7% in infants with a birth weight of less than 1,500 grams. The vast majority of cases of NEC occur in premature infants, with incidence and associated fatality rates inversely related to gestational age and birth weight. Surgical intervention for neck is needed in up to 50% of cases. In spite of numerous advances in the care of neonates, the morbidity and mortality due to neck have remained essentially unchanged. The mortality rate associated with neck approaches 30%, with significantly higher mortality in those requiring surgical intervention, which is about 35%, compared to those requiring medical treatment alone, which is about 21%. What physical examination, laboratory, and radiographic findings are suggestive of necrotizing enterocolitis? The examination findings in infants with neck range from subtle signs to fulminant illness with significant compromise. Gastrointestinal signs include feeding intolerance, delayed gastric emptying, abdominal distension, abdominal tenderness, discoloration of the abdominal wall, and bloody stools. Systemic symptoms include apnea, lethargy, respiratory distress, and temperature instability as well as decreased perfusion. Patients with neck can have abnormalities in their white blood cell count, which most often is decreased, but it can also be elevated. Thrombocytopenia, prolongation of the prothrombin time, and hypofibrinogenemia can also be seen. Infants can present with hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia, hyponatremia, and metabolic acidosis. The CRP level is often elevated. Now time for a clinical pearl. The decreased white blood cell count in patients with neck is due to decreased production and increased utilization of leukocytes. Another clinical pearl. Numerous biomarkers have been evaluated for their potential to diagnose neck earlier and predict clinical course. However, to date, none are part of the standard evaluation of infants suspected of having neck. Next clinical pearl. Pneumatosis intestinalis is caused by hydrogen production by pathogenic bacteria. Pneumatosis intestinalis can also be seen in infants with Hirschsprung enterocolitis or severe gastroenteritis. How is the severity of necrotizing enterocolitis classified? Because of the wide spectrum of clinical presentations of NEC and lack of a uniform set of diagnostic criteria, Bell and colleagues in 1978 proposed a system of classification As you can see in Table 54.2, it lists the physical examination and radiographic signs associated with each stage of neck. What is the pathophysiology of necrotizing enterocolitis? It has been suggested that a combination of numerous factors including genetics, immaturity of the intestinal tract and its functioning in preterm infants, alteration of the microbiome in premature infants, abnormal circulatory regulation, and an exaggerated inflammatory response to stimuli may all play a role in the development of NEC. The amount and diversity of bacteria in the neonate vary based on the mode of delivery, antibiotic exposure, diet, maternal flora, and even genetic background. Breastfeeding and vaginal birth contribute to more diversity, whereas antibiotic exposure decreases diversity. Very low birth weight, or VLBW infants, or those who are born with birth weight less than 1,500 grams, 
are less likely than term infants to breastfeed after birth and are more likely to receive antibiotic therapy, resulting in less microbiome diversity. Additionally, preterm infants have more pathogenic organisms and fewer beneficial organisms. What are the risk factors for developing necrotizing enterocolitis? The most significant risk factors of developing neck are prematurity, low birth weight, and enteral feeding. Risk is inversely related to birth weight and gestational age. The vast majority of neck cases, or greater than 90%, present after the initiation of enteral feeds. Current neonatal practice uses a slow advancement of enteral feeding in an attempt to mediate the risk of enteral feeding. Time for a clinical pearl. Up to 10% of cases of neck occur in term infants with clinical symptoms and pathologic findings similar to those found in preterm infants. Unlike in preterm infants, term infants usually have an underlying disorder or pre-existing condition that predisposes them to developing neck, such as perinatal asphyxia, congenital heart disease, myelomeningocele, polycythemia, exchange transfusion, intrauterine growth restriction, and gastroschisis. Case point 54.2. The infant is made NPO. Empiric antibiotic therapy is initiated with vancomycin, cefotaxime, and piperacillin taxobactam. Over the course of the next four hours, the infant becomes increasingly lethargic with worsening abdominal distension, abdominal tenderness, and erythema on the abdominal wall. Increasing apneic episodes necessitates intubation and mechanical ventilation. How is necrotizing enterocolitis treated? Basic neck treatment consists of supportive care, antibiotic therapy, and frequent monitoring with clinical examination, laboratory studies, and radiologic evaluations. Supportive care includes bowel rest, decompression of the bowel, total parenteral nutrition, fluid and electrolyte management, correction of metabolic acidosis, support of the cardiovascular and respiratory systems, and correction of coagulopathies. The clinician should perform serial examinations and obtain regular radiographs to assess disease progression and for timely identification of pneumoperitoneum. Antibiotic therapy is a mainstay of neck treatment. In general, therapy should include ampicillin and an aminoglycoside to cover both gram-positive and gram-negative organisms. However, due to the common use of ampicillin and gentamicin in premature infants in the NICU, pathogenic organisms can be resistant to these therapies. Very low birth weight infants in the NICU are at risk for bacteremia from coagulase-negative staphylococcus. Therefore, empiric treatment for neck should consist of vancomycin, a third-generation cephalosporin, and an agent effective against anaerobic organisms. For cases of suspected neck, or Bell's stage 1, the duration of medical treatment is determined by the clinician based on clinical judgment. For definite cases of neck, or Bell's stage 2 or higher, Medical treatment should continue for 7 to 14 days. If an infant has advanced disease, surgical intervention should be considered in addition to other elements of treatment. Case point 54.3. The patient is taken to the operating room for a laparotomy which reveals fecalent material in the abdominal cavity and segments of necrotic bowel in the ileum, cecum, and right hemicolon requiring resection. A total of 50 centimeters of bowel is resected including the ileocecal valve. A jejunostomy is created. When does necrotizing enterocolitis require surgical intervention? Surgical intervention for neck is warranted when there is concern for bowel perforation or with worsening clinical status in spite of medical management. Perforation can be evident on an abdominal x-ray with the presence of pneumoperitoneum as seen in figure 54.2. 
In severe cases of pneumoperitoneum, a supine abdominal x-ray can demonstrate the football sign, which occurs when the falciform ligament is outlined by intraperitoneal air as seen in figure 54.2. Pneumoperitoneum can also be suspected if the patient has significant abdominal distension, tenderness, or discoloration of the abdominal wall. Laboratory values including significant thrombocytopenia, metabolic acidosis, neutropenia, a left shift of segmental neutrophils, and hyponatremia are associated with more severe neck and could warrant surgical exploration, even in the absence of obvious pneumoperitoneum. Bowel necrosis can be a discrete segment of bowel, with the distal ileum being the most common site. In patchy areas on several portions of the intestine or may involve the entire gut which is referred to as necrotizing enterocolitis totalis, or neck totalis. Surgical intervention is usually done via a laparotomy with resection of the necrotic portions of bowel, as seen in figure 54.2, and the creation of an intestinal stoma, although infrequently a primary anastomosis is performed. The other surgical intervention that can be considered is peritoneal drain placement. Time for another clinical pearl. Even with appropriate medical management, 34 to 50% of patients with neck require surgical intervention. Case point 54.4. The infant's blood culture returns positive for Streptococcus viridens. He received a total of 14 days of antibiotics after the first negative blood culture. Feeds are initiated with an elemental formula and advance slowly. Once he reaches 100 milliliters per kilogram per day of enteral feeding, he develops loose watery output from his jejunostomy. Six weeks after his initial surgery, he has a reversal of his jejunostomy and reanastomoses of his intestines. However, he continues to have numerous watery stools daily and poor weight gain and is diagnosed with short bowel syndrome. He ultimately is discharged home with a small volume enteral feeds and long-term total parenteral nutrition. What are the long-term sequelae of necrotizing enterocolitis? Intestinal stricture is a common complication seen after an infant has developed neck, with a rate of approximately 20%. Another common complication for infants after surgical intervention for neck is the development of short bowel syndrome, or SBS, defined as a reduction in gut function to a degree that prevents adequate growth, hydration, and or electrolyte balance. The treatment of SBS focuses on ensuring appropriate nutrition, hydration, and electrolyte management while awaiting intestinal adaptation. Surgical lengthening techniques or intestinal transplantation may also be warranted. The most important factors in determining the outcomes for patients with SBS are the length of bowel remaining after surgical resection and whether the ileocecal valve is present. Time for another clinical pearl. For patients with short bowel syndrome, survival is increased if the length of the small intestine is at least 15 centimeters with a retained ileocecal valve or if the length of the small intestine is at least 40 centimeters in the absence of the ileocecal valve. Compared to other very low birth weight infants, infants with neck are more prone to neurodevelopmental impairment later in life. Although the reason for this is unclear, damaged existing cerebral tissue by the acidosis, cytokine release, inflammation, fluctuations in glycemic regulation, and hypotension, all of which can accompany the acute phase of neck, could play a role. So, how can necrotizing enterocolitis be prevented? The use of human milk. Mother's own milk or donor breast milk for feeding has been shown to decrease the risk of acquiring neck compared to the use of formula. 
Fortification of breast milk is standard practice in the NICU to provide preterm infants with adequate calories and minerals. In an attempt to prevent neck, enteral feeds for premature and very low birth weight infants are most often initiated at a very small volume and increased incrementally until the full volume is tolerated. One hypothesis that has been offered to support this incremental increase in feeds is that overdistension of the stomach with large volumes may impair splanchnic blood flow, leading to ischemia. Numerous studies have examined the effectiveness of probiotic supplementation for the prevention of neck, and although a recent meta-analysis has suggested that probiotics may be effective for preventing neck, lingering safety concerns, and lack of consensus regarding which type of probiotic in what dose has prevented universal acceptance of their use in the neonatal community. Time for a Beyond the Pearl summary. The use of H2 blockers contributes to the development of neck in very low birth weight infants. The proposed theory is that by creating a less acidic gastric environment, H2 blockers allow for bacterial overgrowth in the gastrointestinal tract, which can thereby lead to neck. There is ongoing debate regarding the role of blood transfusion in the development of neck. Although some studies have suggested that transfusion could be a risk factor for the development of neck, others have suggested that significant anemia rather than the subsequent transfusion is the risk factor. Anal fissure and cow's milk protein allergy are also causes of hematochesia in a neonate. However, usually these infants are otherwise clinically well-appearing. Cow's milk protein allergy is uncommon in premature infants. Bowel perforation in a preterm infant during the first week of life or before the initiation of feeds is more likely to be spontaneous intestinal perforation, or SIP, rather than neck. Risk factors for SIP include birth weight less than 1,500 grams, prematurity, indomethacin exposure, and postnatal steroid exposure. Only approximately 17% of infants with neck have a positive blood culture during the acute phase of neck. Bloodstream infections in very low birth weight infants during the acute phase of neck are much more likely to be due to gram-negative organisms than bloodstream infections that occur in very low birth weight infants that are not concurrent with neck. Time for the case summary. The chief complaint or history is a 20-day-old, 29-week gestational age premature infant who develops increased residual feeds and apneic episodes. The findings? Tachycardia, tachypnea, lethargy, prolonged capillary refill, erythema of the abdominal wall, and bloody stool. Labs and tests? Laboratory studies show leukopenia, bandemia, and hyponatremia. Abdominal x-ray shows dilated loops of bowel, portal venous gas, and pneumatosis intestinalis. Blood culture positive for streptococcus viridans. Diagnosis, necrotizing enterocolitis. Treatment, NPO, intravenous antibiotics, exploratory laparotomy with necrotic bowel resection, and jejunostomy. That concludes our case for today. Again, my name is Dr. Jasmine Masumi. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis. <laughs>